What's up, everyone? Welcome to a conversation with Joshua T. Berglund, my lovely wife, Jessica Lynn, and Noah Healy. Today's broadcast is fascinating. We just finished, and I'm mind blown. Would you? It was really good. A, a lot of it was above my head, but the concept, the, it's everything going on in the world right now and in our future. So that. And, and a possible solution for mm -hmm. the future. Of course, we don't necessarily, see, Noah and I don't see the world necessarily the same. I asked him about robot armies and things like that. And I don't know if he appreciated that question, but he is such an awesome guy. Just, it was mesmerizing and his idea and concept is so unique that he's been issued a patent on it twice. That's two fingers, not one. Twice. And they took it back. And they took it back twice. Wild. And when you hear why, you'll know that he's onto something. And I'm fascinated with trailblazers. I'm fascinated with people that are willing to to share their ideas with the world, to do bold things, to do things that look so insane, impossible on the surface. And they're willing to do it anyway, because they have the dream, the vision in their heart. And I did a broadcast earlier this morning talking about the very thing. So when you hear him speak about this, and there's a little nugget that you want to listen for that is really cool. And I believe that even if you don't understand what he's saying, you will leave this broadcast inspired because I know I am. I'm a sucker for a visionary. I'm a sucker for a trailblazer because I like to consider us trailblazers and what we do. And, but any of you that are going to pursue your dreams or any of you that are living in fear about what's happening in the world, for those of you that think that everything in the world is evil, listen to this broadcast. It's really good. So enjoy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you guys enjoy. Thank you for being here. God bless. See you soon. Noah Healy, welcome to the broadcast. That we're so grateful to have you today. First things first, can you tell us what are you grateful for today and why? Today, I'm pretty much grateful for being on schedule. But just in general, I've always felt extremely fortunate in the, in just the meeting of circumstances that I, the ability for what I'm good at to be valuable is extraordinary and it is linked to discoveries in mathematics and science going back for centuries now. And it would be extremely unfortunate for me to have been born at a different time that whenever I'm searching for gratitude, it's not far away. Answer like a real genius would yeah, answer that this question. Really smooth. I, I love that. And because we are all alive today by design. Now, some of us accept that and some of us think that we're victims of that. That said, to me, now is, this is the best time to ever be alive. I'm grateful for it too. And 
I think you're a bit of a trailblazer. Even though mathematics pretty much run the world, your specialty, and I want to know, because I don't know anything really about it, and I would like to hear from you, but what you do is so unique. Like, I, I think few people on the planet would even understand what it is, really. Me ruining it with my own vocabulary and trying to explain what you do. Can you tell the audience a little bit about what you do and what your expertise is at? Absolutely. So I'm an algorithm and now a market designer. Algorithms are a kind of general term and unfortunately one that has a lot of negative connotations these days, but algorithms are basically just ways to do things. So a set of procedures for accomplishing something, everything from a recipe you find in a cookbook to how your car's engine is arranged to translate the explosion of gasoline into getting to grandma's house, that the subject of algorithms includes all of those things, as well as more prosaic things like tying your shoelaces and shuffling a deck of cards. One of the things that the discoveries I was talking about earlier where we've actually drawn these things into subjects of mathematics is that a lot of pillars of society, if you will, can actually be evaluated in algorithmic terms. And what a lot of the chaos that I see in the world today is largely attributable to those systems being insufficient in the face of the capacities that we now have. And so specifically marketplaces, which performed reasonably well for the better part of a millennia have really since the eighties started to become globally and locally unstable. And that's really nothing more than the fact they're good up to a point and we have gone beyond that point and have been doing so for a little over a human generation. So I don't, yeah, see, he just, you're, you were, you're, you may be too smart for yeah. me when questions they even <laughs> ask you. The definition. Because here's the thing. So uh, from a dummy's perspective, and I sucked at math, like I cheated on my fourth grade math test and never stopped. Like a, how I made it to college, I have no idea. I, oh, it's because I was an athlete. That's why. But I've always struggled with math and I've always struggled with numbers. But from a dummy's perspective, at least in what it comes from the markets, the stock markets, this financial system that we've lived in for so long. It feels very rigged. It feels if you're not part of that algorithm or you don't know that algorithm or you don't know how to anticipate its changes, you're pretty much doomed financially as far as from the standpoint of I can create a legacy, I can build generational wealth and so on. It feels like the game is rigged for a few. Can you speak to that and help us understand why or why not that is true? or not true? Sure. The primary issue there essentially comes down to inflation and going on there. 
imagine, if you will, a counterfeiter. This person can buy anything they feel like because they just print the money. Yeah. If they can't be caught and punished and stopped, they can keep doing that for as long as they feel like. And the result of them printing that money is that the money will be generally devalued. However, uh, if it was just one person, so imagine out of the eight-ish billion of us, there was one person that printed money. We wouldn't really notice that inflation for quite some time unless they got fully supervillain and were buying entire countries and things like that. Is yeah. that what's going on? Isn't that what Soros does? So the problem is that the systems themselves actually require credit to function. And as a result of that, the operation of the systems effectively behaves like that, but not at the level of some single individual who has access to printing technology, but actually the the collective actions of all of us to engage in economic activity is driving this. And since we've separated from just people doing things to now machines doing things and driving credit as well, just like you can't run faster than your car, you can't emit credit as swiftly as a computer can. And credit expansion is now reaching levels which cannot be sustained by the general economy, or rather it reached levels that couldn't be sustained by the general economy decades ago. And we're now noticing that has been going on for quite some time. So what can we do about it? Blow it up, destroy it? Not really. What we need to oh. do is actually transition to better systems that don't have that, those sorts of flaws. It, we need large-scale organizational systems that can help our economy function. And I have basically first new proposal since the Renaissance for such a system. And that's my proposal is let's give it a try and see how this would work instead. So effectively what's going on is that we built an airplane and we flew it so fast it disintegrated. And so now we're basically rocketing through the atmosphere. And my proposal is a way for us to build a new airplane around us. And if we don't, then some other person might have some other proposal for how to build an airplane that doesn't resemble the one we used to have or the ground beckons and we'll hit it at some point. Is good. Are you talking about countries right now? Is that the countries, regions, individual industries, everything's affected by this. Mm -hmm. I was talking to somebody about this subject just last week and telling them how the markets basically have a blow up every single day. And later that day, 
there was a news item about the frozen concentrated orange juice market going limit up. So the market went up so quickly that they had to shut the marketplace down. It's called a circuit breaker in order to keep the people who actually work in the frozen concentrated orange juice business from all having to bankrupt as a result of their costs driving too high. These are just normal events in our world today. And we, we can expect this sort of storm of circumstance to get continuously worse until it becomes intolerable because it's not being driven by bad policy, although the policies are bad, and it's not being driven by nefarious people, although the people are nefarious. It's being driven by just systemic incapacity. So just like you can't bench press 60,000 tons because your bones aren't strong enough. How do you know? <laughs> You're so small. Uh, just because simple physics does not allow these systems to function in the face of the volumes and speeds of information processing that exists today. All right. I got a question. There's a, I've been following the world economic forum for quite a long time. And I've read a lot about this rumored quantum financial system, which is some people consider the one world currency, the government currency, the world government currency, where everything is monitored or by the blockchain and AI and yada. You know, a lot. Of, and so the feeling with that among some people is that this is the mark of the beast that may be coming. At the same breath, I want to, I want to throw this out there because I'm curious about this. Right now, the way that we are set up, at least the way that I understand it from country to country and the way our financial system around the financial systems around the world work, it seems like it's set up for corruption. It's set up for one country to be dominant over the other and so on, whether they stay dominant through war or whatever. Anyway, my point is this, is the idea and concept of one world currency, is it all bad and horrifying or there, could there be legitimate benefits to having one global currency with one glove? global government with one global really just overseer of the human race. Is that idea and concept completely corrupt or are there potential benefits to having something like that? I can't really see that as highly beneficial. So one of one of the big deals about marketplaces in the first place, and one of the reasons they're so unpopular with political movements, like, for example, the World Economic Forum, is that they're federated ways to, to have power situations. And what marketplaces do is they essentially allow us to act as superminds. So... With modern AI, there's a lot of thinking about now, how do we cope with and what are the consequences of superintelligence on society? And the thing is, we've actually had superintelligences for centuries now because marketplaces 
bring together multiple human minds and allow them to negotiate with each other in such a way to have ideas that are better than any one of them come up with individually. And the challenge is that our economies are at such a high scale and such a high complexity that without the inputs from these super minds, individual businesses could not succeed. While many people like to point at socialism's failures for the free rider problem, that without proper incentives, people will just drift and then you don't get, you don't really get much out of it. An even larger scale problem than that one is that putting human beings in charge of things limits you to the intelligence of that human. And while very smart people do and have existed, there aren't people that are smarter than dozens or hundreds or millions of other smart people simultaneously. And so these mechanisms that allow us to extract these super intelligence insights are actually critical. What I see in things like the World Economic Forum or other sorts of movements like that is the desire for the existing institutions that we have, or in many cases, people working within those institutions to do the aristocrat thing, maintain their own position through a transition to a, a new system. Whether or not that will or should succeed is something I don't have much of an opinion on, but what I am confident of is that the institutions that we have will fail because it's, again, it's just one of those things of, you know, looking at a bridge that is designed to hold up X number of tons and wondering what would happen if a meteor hit it. It wasn't designed for a meteor to hit it. I think my house was either. Yeah. Just, it's a scale problem and it's not a close scale problem. It's not like we're 10% short or a hundred percent short or something like that. It's things outside the scope of anything that had been previously imagined are what's now commonplace. And people, everybody remarks upon this, the consequences of smartphones, social media, just the amount of information that exists and is produced on, on a daily basis is far beyond anything that could have been seen before. But going back to your question again, these sorts of questions of corruption and cronyism are not new. If you're familiar with the Federalist Papers, one of Hamilton's points was for the federal government to subsume the debts the states had taken on as part of the Revolutionary War. And his point was that effectively the new government would need a legitimating basis. And his idea was that if that a civilian government could gain legitimacy by effectively crony capitalism, by 
reaching out to the wealthy and increasing the wealth, the wealthy would then use their wealth to support the government, which could then use its newfound powers to increase the wealth of the wealthy. And everybody would be happy. Wealthy people would be happy. Powerful people would be happy. Everything works. That's probably not a great idea. And it was eventually canceled by Jackson. But, but that's still part of the founding DNA of non-militaristic governments like we have in most places around the world these days, that that's what you do. And yeah, we do see enormous amounts of corruption and that's, it's not great, but unfortunately, I think we have even larger problems. Oh, I agree because while everyone complains or not everyone complains about their government, some people think government's awesome, which I don't know what they're smoking, but anyway, I may need well, for them. No, they sure. for them. There you go. Yeah. Good point. But what I'm seeing is right now, what we can see play out on the news is the rise of the technocrats. The, your, I, cause Google has had their own robot army for 20 something years. I remember reading in like 1996, 97, 98, something somewhere around that time about Google's robot army and how their robot army is stationed on sovereign land around the world. Like they're positioned around the world, almost like the United States government is. And yet, and then you have the Bezos of the world and you have the Musk of the world. And I look at the things that they've invented and just connecting the dots in my head about with what I know about technology or what I believe about technology and where we're private military as opposed to government military. We're already seeing that with government contractors. But I believe that we're going to see the Elon Musk of the world, the Bezos of the world, the Googles of the world, their armies, their robot armies. I think that they're going to take over. I think that you're going to see Musk or a Bezos and someone like that be the new leader of the world. Like, I think that that's where we're going. Could be wrong. But what I see playing out in the news right now is very much that. Because right now, these tech companies... The one thing I don't think they ever took for, or not the tech companies, but our governments, I don't think they ever factored into the fact that these tech companies have all their data. McAfee, all the information he has on every single person in the world, Musk the same way. So with what I understand about Agenda 2030 and smart cities and the new internet that could or could not happen, it really feels like the new leaders will be these tech lords. What are you, what are your thoughts on that? You can I, call me crazy, by the way. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He's the first. You wouldn't be the first. <laughs> the robot armies, I'm not certain about. Obviously, drones exist and are, are quite common. But institutionally, I don't see a lot of institutional building. And walking into the existing institutions just doesn't strike me as valuable. So what I'm looking at is a situation where the institutions that we have are effectively in a state of collapse. The people in those institutions are rather desperately attempting to recapitulate the sort of 
obeisance to them, but that's not really gonna, gonna actually do anything because the problem isn't that people don't respect governments or markets or the media anymore. The problem is that we haven't figured out how to build functioning versions of those things yet. And so, so something like a Musk or the Alphabet Group or somebody like that taking over doesn't mean anything in terms of the things that we have because those are, the palace is literally falling apart. It's, if they walk in and something lands on their head, it'll just kill them. So it's just not, it's not even worthwhile to move in that direction because we know it's the wrong answer. And so my hope is that we can build things that will function. And in the absence of building things that will function, well, then things will break down until we get down to a simple enough existence that things that we're used to can actually work again, which be probably pre-industrial would be my guess. Going back to Adam and Eve days like and starting over. Trading services. Probably not quite that, but if you chart things like previous dark ages, yeah, you uh, things like the Bronze Age collapse, they didn't revert to the Stone Age, but they did have mass loss of population economic sophistication that took something like a thousand years to recover from. If you look at things like the collapse of the Roman empire, again, it's not like they lost access to ironworking, although they did forget how to make Roman concrete. They just became uh, the Catholic church though. That's not all that happened. I know there was a lot more, but that was a big part of it, wasn't it? This is one of the examples I like to bring out. The first human city to reach a population of a million was Rome in the early imperial period. When the Attila the Hun invaded and sacked Rome and left the Vatican unspoiled, the population of Rome at that time, which was, I think, something like 500 years later, was 400. 400? Yes. <laughs> Not 400 million. No, not 400 million, not 400,000. 400. Yes. We now have cities with populations in the tens of millions. Imagine what it would look like for a New York or a London or a Beijing to move to a population in the single digit thousands. What sort of evolution of society would you imagine would be associated with such a reversion? We would probably put down our phones and start talking to each other. You would have to grow a garden where I'm losing the matter. Yes. I want to grow a garden. Can I ask a question quick? You you were talking about 
the robot armies and I've been listening to people talk about AI and how like they've already AI has already reached a point where they bypassed how smart we are. If that if I'm saying that right. They you, ultimately you will could argue that us. point. But that's one of the issues. We own computers. Think about what happened to with the evolution of the steam engine. So one of my things are computers are bigger than steam engines. Let's examine the world pre-steam engines, post-steam engines. Which governments continue to exist from before and after? There's one or two. And there's some uncontacted tribes that haven't noticed yet. What religions survive the transition? There's not really any of those. All the religions have undergone major reform movements over the last two and a half centuries. What about other institutions? Universities, to some extent, are similar. Pre and post-industrial revolution, markets remain the same. There was some movement in what those markets were and what was traded. And that's basically it. Levels of literacy pre and post industrialization were totally different. So now that we have computers and now that those computers are demonstrating that they can do things that we think of as intelligent behavior in ways that are far beyond us, computers outperform human beings on stuff like interpreting x-rays. Human beings cannot tell things like race from x-rays. However, there was paper bringing up the concern that computers actually can pick out the racial characteristics of the people that they have x-rays from. I knew robots and racists. Headline about that. Actually, even when they blurred the x-ray to the point where human beings couldn't even tell what the x-ray, like what part of the body was being x-rayed, or even that it was an x-ray at all, the computers could still do that. The information that was resident was still something they could detect. Chess. People are very familiar now with the sort of super chess games and so on. The world's, the best human chess player that the world has ever produced is the current world champion. And he has a, it's called an ELO rating. This is an exponential rating. Roughly speaking, if, if. Joe has 200 more points of ELO than Fred, then out of four games, Joe will take three points and Fred will take one point. And that's exponential. If it's a 400 point, it'd be 15 to one and then 63 to one and so on. So the very best human player of all time, his ELO is around 2,850. A top computer engine just participated in something called the Fisher Random Chess, where it has an estimated ELO of just over 4,000. Wow. These supercomputer chess players have actually been making us better at playing chess, not me personally, but at the highest levels the best chess players have gained new insights into chess from the computers and been able to incorporate them into their games and become slightly better chess players as a result. At the same time, the computers themselves have become about a thousand points better. 
So in the time that we gained maybe 100 points of strength, they gained about 1,000 points of strength. And so this is just a fact. This is reality. And we have to cope with this fact that we should expect decision-making to be better done under those circumstances. And so what's up with super CEOs like Musk, Bezos, like how much better could the decision-making that they're undertaking be done if it were being done in a sensible fashion? And is it worthwhile to us humanity to monopolize sections of our economy instead of turning them over to more effective marketplaces, which could then federate not just their insights, which might be outsized compared to the average person, but also other people's insights as well. So that's, again, the value of having functioning marketplaces is that it's not simply individual geniuses or some computer program that nobody really understands, but joint contributions of many perspectives simultaneously. He's essentially describing a kingdom lifestyle, but different. Like he's using different terminology, but essentially that's what he's talking about. Two-part question really quick. You were talking about the establishment. So college university buildings, do you think that they have longevity in the future? Or are they going to die and we're going to learn from computers? So I, I think universities would be one of the things that wouldn't make it through this one. The basic university lecture style goes all the way back to before the printing press. And while it turns out that it seems that listening to and writing down something at the same time is a generally better way for human beings to learn things, I don't know that a human being has to be the thing that that you're listening to while you're writing things down. And for myself, I got out of college at the turn of a millennium and the most important knowledge I've gained, I continue to use the mathematics learned in school. I went to engineering school, studied nuclear engineering. I don't use nuclear engineering that much in my day-to-day life, but the mathematics that I learned there was very useful. And it's something that I use considerably, but I did not learn a great deal of computational mathematics in school. But since computational mathematics effectively invented the internet, and one of the primary early use cases of the internet was sharing computational mathematical papers with the other people that were also inventing the internet, all of that material and also much of the culture that was around the creation of material is all published free online. And so the learning path that I took to achieve what I've achieved, get the jobs that I've got, invent the stuff that I've invented is for the most part freely available to eight-ish billion of us. 
if you have a functioning internet connection and anything else. And so in that respect, what value do the buildings at Stanford or Oxford or Harvard have for, for people? So then part two is this whole, the whole student loan forgiveness thing. Does that even matter? If the colleges go down and we're not learning from them, do people need to pay them back? The whole issue with student loans is that's another one of those things where we come back to the system essentially being based on credit admission. So if you increase access to something by making it cheaper, by allowing people access to low cost credit, what the colleges have done is jack prices up because people can afford it more. And then we create this vicious cycle of expansion and so on. In those terms, that all looks quite vicious and simply drawing a line under it and cutting it off seems entirely sensible. So some kind of thing where you simply say people who have invested in those things, which include pension funds can mark to zero and, and take it because it was an evil thing to do to even offer it in the first place while simultaneously shutting them down and then telling the colleges to go pound sand and figure out how to get their thing together would be a sharp but sensible evolution in how we put our country together. But that's not what's being discussed. What's being discussed is some form of taxpayer support to some of the people involved, which now appears to be illegal according to the court system. So again, what I think we're mostly seeing in the student loan forgiveness debate is institutional death rattle, where the political system isn't actually capable of providing services that are valuable. And so it's just desperately casting around for lies that it can tell to attempt to perpetuate its superficial righteousness for another day. And it's, it's like they're on a raft that's in the rapids and they're pulling rocks away, but the rapids are heading to a waterfall and they're too busy pulling rocks away from the boat to, to steer over and get off. So, you know, it, whether they crash on a rock or manage to get past this one, they'll go over the waterfall at some point. I have eight million questions and for the sake of time we're gonna have to we're gonna have to have you come back part yeah part two because there's all every answer you give gives me 20 more questions me too. so i would love to hear about your company and the work that you all do just be specific share because i you only gone into a little bit and i think what you're doing is really important especially the heart behind it because i think when it comes to math and algorithms, most people think there's no heart, but 
your idea because it's what's well, math, right? It's just math is a, I don't even know how to describe that's math. That everyone, hard. It's, it's just that's beyond hard. my comprehension that, but that said, like when I was reviewing your website and just seeing what you were all about, like you have a real mission to help humanity utilizing your knowledge. So can you share a little bit about that, please? Absolutely. And thanks for being so complimentary. So the core of my idea is that the buyer-seller relationship is effectively too contentious and too noisy to use as the basis. And so I've found a three-player game, a producer, consumer, and forecaster. And people can play more than one role if they wish, but producers see prices and decide how much they want to provide prices that are available. Consumers see the, the basically price plus commission and decide how much they want to use at the prices that are available. And the forecasters attempt to project what those prices will turn out to be as far into the future as they can. And as those three perspectives merge and sync up so that the amount that people want to make is the amount that people want to use at the prices that people can actually see coming, then business can be effectively and economically operated at good rates of return. And we can actually have an economy where the stuff that we need to live is being produced by people who are getting paid for doing that. How did you come up with that idea? Yeah. I was, were you in the shower? Were you in the shower when you decided to do this? I was actually walking an apple tree, which is currently dead. I you was took all its power, man. I was right up. I was thinking about how to create consensus with network communication. And I found an approach using game theory, which allows something called pricing transaction costs. There's a whole history with transaction costs I can get into, but basically economics doesn't know how to do that. And so a buddy of mine asked if there was a way you could use that to predict the stock market. I said, no, because you can't pay enough for the information. As I was walking back to my house, I had this thought, marketplaces, of course, do pay for the information that they acquire. And so there might be instead of this sort of relatively simple single pass type of algorithm to come up with. In algorithms, there's something called recursion. That thing reflects back on itself and uses its own value. You can think of it in recipe terms as like starter culture, where a little bit of a last sourdough loaf is used to make the next sourdough loaf and so on. Oh, I didn't. Oh, huh. cool. thought that there might be some kind of a way to create a recursive version of my approach to create a marketplace. And so on a lark, I decided to try to figure out how such a thing would work. And as I was figuring it out and then putting it together, 
I discovered that with a few hundred lines of code, the computer that I'm talking to you on could handle the transaction volumes required for the entire global economy and could do so at costs that would be hundreds of billions of dollars less per year than the markets that we presently have. Well, and so that's it. There's no more economically valuable activity for anybody to be engaged in. And uh, so that's me. Like, I'm the one who's engaged in it. Do you have bodyguards? Cool. Yeah. No. Nope. you don't. You're like the guy that invented the hydrogen engine who just disappeared. I, this seems like a real, I, actually, I don't want to give anyone any ideas. Never mind. I'm just going to stop talking right there. Wow. That's cool. So how far along are you in this journey? Like, where are you at in the process? Or do you have to get in front of Congress? Or what do you have to do? Like, how does this happen? It needs to get into the world. And so people who have or could build marketplaces need to incorporate the technology into those th systems. There are a handful of those people around the world that are working on marketplaces with the, the incorporated technology. And I'm actively searching planet for other people who would like to give it a try. At the same time, I'm pursuing a patent with the U.S. Patent Office, which has gone fully Kafka-esque. I appear to be the first person in history for the patent office to issue a notice of acceptance and then withdraw that notice of acceptance themselves twice. Yes, happening once is rare, but heard of. Happening twice is, as far as I can tell, unheard of. Why'd they do that? Threat to society. We know that, but why'd they let you in and then... The first time was a involved explanation that if you boiled the math down was a claim that one and two were the same. And so they were forced to withdraw that withdrawal. And the second time was a very similar verbiage to the first with a personal note from my examiner and my examiner's supervisor saying that internal quality control had said no, they the people I'm allowed to talk to could not understand what the reasons were that they, the people I'm allowed to talk to felt that it actually should go forward and that the eternal quality control were people that I'm not allowed to talk to, or in fact, know anything about. So we are appealing that to courts and we'll see what happens. Is there another way around? Like I, I did have my congressional yeah. office issue a, an inquiry to try to figure out what's going on. And they essentially sent a boilerplate timeline and a statement that they don't communicate outside of the channel through which they were communicating with my attorney. And the timeline was unfactual. Are they going to steal your plans? I don't know. Do it themselves. Yeah. Uh, it would be. I think his, that kind of intellectual property, I think that's one of those things that whether he believes in God or not, I don't know, but that God gives somebody that no one can touch. I think that this is his, but I think actually I did a broadcast earlier about vision and 
and this, we actually discussed this and talked about this anyway, this very thing, not the idea of having something special, like you have, like it's yours to use. It's like, which you, this is the purpose of why you're alive. And of course, with that, there's always trials and tribulations and things that come at you to test your vision or to test mm -hmm. whether or not you really care and you're committed to seeing this through to get this out to the world. But I personally, I'm one of those people, I don't, I've heard over the years that you don't share your vision with people. I've never believed that because if you don't share your vision, then how in the heck are people going to come support you? Because what There's you're a doing quote from Alan Kay, who created a lot of important computer science things that you use every day, whether you know it or not. Don't worry about anybody stealing your ideas. If your ideas are any good at all, you'll have to shove them down people's throats. That's I'm with you on this hundred percent. Like with what, what we do same way. It's like being on an Island by yourself. You're a trailblazer. Yeah. We were I mean, you're, talking about yeah, that. We talk about this stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. You're a trailblazer and I'm, I feel honored that you were here sharing this idea. And even though I can't, to be honest with you, I don't fully comprehend it. I like the spirit behind it. And I like anyone who's trying to change the world for the better to, to even things out. And so I, I have mad respect for that. And I would love to have you back on to answer to, cause I've got 800 million more questions to ask. But why don't you tell everybody where they can support you, where they can find you, where they can, cause you have a white paper that you've published that's definitely worth checking out and you have all of your ducks in a row. So this is not some noetic science, crazy thing. That's just like, you have, you've done the work, you've got all the information there. This is a very real tangible thing. It's not BS. You would not have gotten the patent if it was BS. And uh, yeah, so I, I think what you're doing is awesome. Again, I don't fully understand it, but I think it's super cool. So please tell everyone where they can support you and, and plug anything you want to plug. Yeah. So there's a website, accorddisc.com. It's shortening of coordinated discovery. So it's C-O-R-D-I-S-C. You can find a link to the white paper there. There's also some explanatory video and a link to YouTube with the longest form of that. And if people would like to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the, I'm just Noah Healy there or Noah P Healy at yahoo.com. And yes, this is patent pending inside the United States. It's open source overseas. If you or someone, you know, is interested in having an economy, reach out. That's so cool. If anything, we'll just get a bunch of people together and start our own. That's our plan. Yeah. That's that, that could work out as well. It will. Noah, thank you for being here. Thank you for your time. And I uh, look forward to doing this again. Excellent. Thank you. Bye -bye.